0: Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch, London. For more information and resources, please go to Christchurchlondon.org. So let's get started. Um, we're looking at John chapter 12. Um, the words will come up on the screen behind me. Uh, if, you have a, if you have a Bible, it's verse 1 to 11. <clears throat> But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So this is obviously a famous story because it paints one of the most beautiful pictures of worship that we have in the Gospels. Uh, One of the most beautiful and extravagant acts of worship of Jesus um, during his lifetime. So we see Mary pouring out this very expensive perfume, this pure nard, um, onto Jesus. And Judas gives us an indication of just how expensive this perfume was. So he says, it was year, it was worth <clears throat> a year's wages. I want you to stop and think how much money that would be for you. A year's wages. Um, and then I want you to imagine having one object in your home that would be worth that much money. I wish, I wish. That were the case for me. It's not. Um, this would probably, you know, be the equivalent today of like a, a house deposit, something like that. Um, We can only imagine that it was uh, Mary's most precious possession in her home. And note that um, these perfumes were often used to embalm people after they had died. And Mary um, had just um, lost her brother Lazarus um, the chapter before, and she hadn't used it on Lazarus's body. So it tells us something about just how precious this perfume was. And not only does she pour it out on Jesus, the whole bottle, but she pours it on Jesus' feet. Now, I don't even think we need to refer back to Jesus' time and culture. I think in any time, in any culture, in any part of the world, feet are not a nice part of the body. And um, I don't enjoy touching anybody's feet, not even really my own. Um, Feet are dirty, they are smelly, even the son of God, you know, he was fully human, so they weren't nice. And um, not only that, but um, the one thing that would have been the case in Jesus' time is that It would have been very hot and very dusty. And Jesus would have been wearing sandals. So his feet were very, probably very dirty. Um, So Mary, then we have this kind of juxtaposition of Mary pouring out her most treasured possession onto Jesus' most kind of dirty part of his body, the most kind of humble part of his body touch. Of course, we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet um, in the Gospels as well. And he makes that kind of the ultimate picture of servanthood of servitude um, so such a picture of uh, humility and not only that but then all, also intimacy she 's using her hair to wipe his feet um, and um, in in um, Jesus's culture that would have been um, a woman 's hair was a very intimate part of of a woman and so also just incredibly intimate i I google imaged um, This picture, just because I wanted to see some portrayals, I didn't actually put any of them up because I couldn't find any that weren't very cheesy. But um, (laughs) I couldn't find any particularly beautiful ones. But even just seeing any image of this, I found so moving. You know, just picture a woman kind of down at his feet, at Jesus's feet, wiping um, perfume um, onto onto Jesus's feet. It's it's an incredibly moving picture. And Jesus really commends this act of worship as being appropriate and right worship of him. Judas makes a fair point um, that, you know, the money could have been used to feed people who didn't have enough money to eat. I think, you know, a lot of us may have had the same objection. But of course, Jesus says, no, this, this, what she has done is appropriate and right in worship of me today. So Mary is doing something right here, and um, that is why we're going to be really looking at her and her worship of Jesus and what we can learn um, about how we may become um, even more uh, true worshipers of Jesus um, through her example. You might be wondering what I even mean by worship. It's a term that gets banded around a lot in church, and often we're obviously referring to kind of sung worship. Um, But really what I'm referring to here is, um, I would say, an expression of love for the thing we are living for. For the thing or the person that means the most to us, um, the thing that gives our lives meaning. I would say that we worship the thing that we live for. And you might look at this story and think, uh, actually, I think I, I, before preparing this, I probably thought, wow, you know, this is a, a special act of worship. It's particularly extravagant. It's kind of, of uber-devotion here. You know, she's um, doing something way over the top. But as I thought about it, I thought, and I thought about how we are uh, human beings all worship something or someone, I thought that, actually, I really believe that all of us are worshipping something or someone with the same extravagance that we see Mary display in this act. I really think that we are all worshiping, whether we realize it or not. Um, I'm going to quote uh, David Foster Wallace. Um, Now, I realize that this quote has been used many times in Christchurch and very recently uh, in a preach, so my apologies. But it clearly stuck with me very well, so it's clearly effective, and it does illustrate my point perfectly. So I am going to go ahead and use it. Um, David Foster Wallace is uh, not a Christian. He's an American writer and professor, um, and he says this about worship. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. The most compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths, no idea what he means there, or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigraphs, parables, a skeleton of every great story. But the whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. And I do agree, as I've said that, the human heart is kind of uh, wired. It is created to direct worship at something. We all need a reason to live. We all need a reason to get up in the morning. You may know uh, Victor, or know of, um, I don't think anyone knows Victor Frankel, but if you, if you did, that would have been amazing. Uh, he's an amazing Austrian psychiatrist, um, sadly um, not alive anymore, but he was a, is a Holocaust survivor, spent time in many different concentration camps throughout World War II, and he wrote this um, incredible observation as a psychiatrist of his time in concentration camps called Man's Search for Meaning. And uh, he, there in this book, he's documenting two kind of general observations he makes of those who lived in con- the concentration camps with him. And um, on the one side, he um, knew a lot of people who had an incredible sense of. Um, Of of purpose and of meaning that went beyond the concentration camp. So basically people who had a real reason, a very strong reason to survive and to make it through. And he says that um, a, a lot of those who had this strong sense of purpose and meaning and Uh, wanting to survive, actually against the odds really, did end up surviving the Holocaust. Um, But he also noticed a a general trend, which was that he, he saw many who gave up Um, on those purposes and those meanings that gave up on a reason to survive, a reason to get through it. And he saw that as people gave up on that kind of purpose and meaning in their lives, um, many of them would, would die soon after. And I think, you know, we all have this strange longing for, for meaning, for purpose, to live for something bigger than ourselves. You know, think of kind of the great um, role models of our time, you know, like Nelson Mandela, people who lived for something um, other than themselves, who really gave themselves to a purpose for a meaning. It's what draws us uh, to the great stories, great movies, is people living uh, for something else we don't often call it worship, um, but that's what I'm referring to when we are giving all of ourselves, laying all of ourselves down for something. And David Foster Wallace mentions sex and money, but I actually think that um, we devote ourselves and we worship many, many wonderful good things in life. I work in the field of, um, I work in the refugee sector and more broadly it's, you know, the field of human rights and it is an incredibly competitive and taxing field of work and um, I really see it become an altar of worship for many of us working in this field because um, it's it uh, is very competitive it takes a lot of work to see progress in whatever cause you are working on behalf of but it's a wonderful it's a wonderful thing to do to work to protect the most vulnerable in the world and uphold their rights Um, but it can truly become an altar of worship Another example that's very personal for me, Um, so I became a mother two years ago, and um, as my daughter was born, I experienced what I'd heard parents um, talk about, which is this kind of overwhelming desire to protect my my child, and of course this is a good instinct, it's a God-given instinct that parents should feel this way about their children, but I found um, That in the first year of her life, this actually developed into um, a real uh, depression and anxiety for me because what was happening is that I had become, I had started in my heart to worship my baby, to worship her security, to worship the idea that I could keep her safe all of her life and that nothing bad would ever happen to her. Her security became everything to me. And when things, um, worldly things, become our everything, anything that threatens it can um, lead us to despair. And of course, I is confronted with the reality that I truly cannot protect her from bad things and the reality that bad things will happen to her eventually, just as they happened to me and to all of us in this room. Why is it that such good and wonderful things in this life can have such negative consequences on us when they become the thing in our lives? I want to suggest this morning that it is because no earthly thing, however wonderful and good it is, can sustain the weight of our worship. No earthly thing can sustain the weight of your worship. So for me, through getting support, um, a lot of wonderful people in church and other places, I was able to s- start discerning what was going on in my heart, that truly I had begun to worship the idea of security for my family. And it took very a very deliberate choice to uh, worship God in a, in a more deliberate way than before. Um, sometimes, um, in, in some ways, that looked like... Um, Uh, You know, actual sung worship to God, expressing my devotion to God, expressing that he is the one preaching to myself, that he is the thing that I live for and nothing else. But also what I chose to read, what I gave my free time and my thought, um, my free headspace to, um, I was able to start moving in the direction to make God the meaning and purpose in my life again. And my experience of moving from a place of worshiping something earthly and someone earthly to worshiping God is that it left me, it has left me increasingly freer. Increasingly, I'm feeling less afraid as I'm choosing to spend my time worshiping God and reading about him. I find myself dreaming about the future and even about taking risks that might lead to danger and dreaming about my daughter's future that she may they have a life full, of, um, full of, kind of all kinds of adventures and risks, be they dangerous or not, for God. Only God is big enough to carry the weight of our ultimate hope and meaning and purpose. <clears throat> When I worshipped my family and security, I never had enough. It's anxiety and it's um, insatiable. You never have enough. You never have enough guarantees. You are never able to protect enough. There's never enough when we worship money, when we worship achievement, when we worship success. Never enough, never enough. Hustling, hustling, striving, striving. And yet when we worship God, we find him to be abundant, abundant. For those of us who do worship God, you know exactly what I mean. It's spacious, it's free, it's open, and it's like drinking water which doesn't leave you thirsty or drawing from a well that doesn't run dry. And it's like holding out for a hope which you know with certainty and conviction will not disappoint you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> So going back to our story, um, so we see a woman in the place that I want to be. I want to be have that heart inclination to just go get my most expensive stuff, my most precious whatever, and just give it all to God, just pour it out on his feet. I don't care. I just want to give everything. I want to be like Mary. So how has she become this kind of woman who would do this kind of act What has created this heart inclination in her? And perhaps you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian today, but you're thinking, how does one become this crazy, you know? (laughs) Um, How does one become somebody who wants to worship a man who lived 2,000 years ago that we're not seeing in flesh and blood today, and yet why would you want to give everything? Why would you want to become like Mary well, <clears throat> this story actually directly follows another story. So John 12, it's right after John 11, believe it or not, uh, which is the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead, which we hear references to in um, the meal that we read about. But what I really want to do this morning is actually look at John 11 and look at the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And I want you, as we read it, to really think about Mary and focus in on Mary and see what's happening to her here. So the words will come up on the screen behind me. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know, even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, "'I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this?' "'Yes, Lord,' she replied. "'I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come into the world.'" After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. "'The teacher's here,' she said. "'He's asking for you.'" When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village and was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who'd been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of those standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So do you see that Mary's extravagant, wholehearted worship of Jesus directly follows something very personal that Jesus has done for her and for her own family? So let's look at Mary in the story first. Um, Mary's very different from Martha. So is the more kind of practical, pragmatic sister. She um, does tell Jesus, you know, If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. But I do know that anything you ask, God will do. Uh, Theologically correct, yes, at the last day, he will be resurrected from the dead. Yes, I know the answers, Jesus. And, um, oh, Jesus, should we roll away the stone? It will smell really bad. (laughs) So she's very practical, very pragmatic. Um, I can't relate. Um, (laughs) Mary, on the other hand, I can. Mary is very seemingly much more uh, reflective and emotional. So Mary does not come out to meet Jesus. <clears throat> and given the whole story, we can assume that Mary is too disappointed and confused as to why Jesus didn't come earlier to save her brother. And she is too kind of in the middle of the grief and the emotion of having lost her brother to even come out and meet him. But of course, uh, Jesus actually calls her out and, um, <clears throat> and then we see her in her vulnerability and in her grief. She falls down at his feet. She's not even physically able to keep herself up. She collapses at Jesus' um, feet, interestingly, his feet again. And there she pours out her heart, which is a simple line with no theological band-aid on top of it. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So honest. I wonder if you can relate at all to her question. Lord, if you'd been here, this would not have happened to me. This would not have happened to the person I love. What I'm seeing happening in the world would not be going on if, if you had stopped it, if you could stop it. God, Jesus, where are you? Why? And I think Many of us, too, kind of stay inside our metaphorical houses often because the pain and the confusion that we have with God often is too painful to even bring out and show him. But Jesus calls her out, and I believe that Jesus calls us out of those places or in spite of those places, he calls us to him. Mary, come out, come here. And we see in her a wonderful example of a very honest um, kind of expression of where she's at, an expression of her disappointment, an expression of her confusion, and an expression of her grief. And what is Mary met with when she meets Jesus this way? Well, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he wept. Jesus wept. He has compassion. He has compassion for her. He has compassion for the Jews' mourning. He has compassion for Lazarus. He feels and he acts. So he, of course, goes to the tomb, and he doesn't leave Lazarus dead, but with the power of, (laughs) by the power of God, by his simply his spoken word, he's able to raise Lazarus from the dead. And Mary's brother is no longer dead; he is alive. Her life and her family's life, and. the whole community around them and the whole world is changed by this act of compassion and power on Jesus' behalf. And Mary, very personally, life has been changed by Jesus, has been directly touched. So you might be thinking, well, yes, you know, if I had had a relative who'd been brought back to life from the dead, perhaps I would be like Mary, but... Um, I've not seen anyone being raised from the dead yet in my life. Um, Or it may even be that the story of Lazarus raises uh, painful and difficult questions for you. Um, Perhaps you, like Mary, um, are asking, as we talked about, um, where were you, Jesus? Where are you? You have unanswered questions that are still there. I think that stories like this in the Bible, there are many where we see honesty and vulnerability. I think they invite us to to kind of bring our questions where they belong, which is at Jesus' feet before him. And there we are met with Jesus' compassion, kindness, and I believe his action too, his activity, just as Mary found. So you might be wondering now, how might Jesus come and meet with me? And what might he do for me in my questions, in my situations? Well, I truly believe that Jesus wants to do many wonderful things for all of us. But perhaps most importantly, the story of Lazarus is a foreshadowing of another story about Jesus that follows. And Jesus himself also dies. And he is also placed in a tomb with a stone at the front. But there is a difference between the two men. Jesus willingly dies. He is accused, he's mocked, he's tortured, and he's killed as a criminal, but he could have stopped it. Lazarus could not have, Jesus could have stopped it, but he doesn't. Because just as when he stands before Lazarus's tomb, Jesus is so moved by humanity's condition, by humanity's brokenness, by human suffering, that he wants to do something about it. And that is why he allows himself to be killed and to go to the grave. When we look around the world today, I think we um, are seeing an increasing extent of human suffering. And we're all asking ourselves, why, why, why? God, why is this happening? Why are you allowing this suffering to happen? And this is the biggest objection to the Christian faith in our culture, in our generation. If there is a loving God, then why are we seeing human suffering? And yet, the funny thing is, it's this very condition, it's this very brokenness, it's death itself that propels God to come as a man and to go to the cross to, for Jesus. That is what drives Jesus to the cross. We see it when he's before Lazarus's tomb, that he is deeply moved, he weeps, and we see it in the cross that is the same emotion, the same drive, which allows himself himself to be subjected to death and death on a cross. This is exactly <clears throat> why the gospel is very relevant for our world and for our time because the world is not peachy as it is and we need a savior and he was a savior and he is a savior for us today. So as Jesus is killed, he takes on death and divine judgment that each of us deserved and it literally kills him. And as he breathes his last breath, he is perhaps echoing Mary's words a few chapters before, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet Jesus, unlike Mary, unlike Lazarus, and unlike any of us, is truly forsaken by God for our sake but to our joy and to our salvation, And great rejoicing. Jesus, like Lazarus, doesn't stay in the tomb. Once again, the power of God comes, which is stronger than the grave itself. And we see Jesus burst forth from the grave, announcing to his followers that death is defeated. And if we acknowledge what has just happened, then our death too has been defeated on the cross. And we too, like Lazarus, like Jesus, await a bodily resurrection from the dead. It is promised, it's guaranteed, it's finished, and it's coming. And that is the central message of the Christian faith, that Jesus has done away with death, just like we see at Lazarus' tomb, just like we see ultimately at the cross. And we can know God as children who are loved like children loved by a father. So there is one this morning who can be worshipped, who will not strangle us, who will not exhaust us, um, but worshipping him will free us. He gives us space to live, space to take risks. He gives us a meaning and a purpose and a hope that goes beyond this world we're living in right now. He offers us eternity with him, where worship of him will be something there will never be enough of, but that's going to be okay. Uh, Could the band come back up while we close? In a minute, we're going to sing um, a song, and I just want to encourage you to reflect on that picture of Mary as we sing these songs, pouring out everything, pouring out all of her devotion, everything she had on Jesus' feet. And um, also, as I was preparing this, I kept hearing, um, or I kept um, being reminded of this phrase, Be hungry for encounters with Jesus. I felt like God wanted us to be hungry, to awaken a hunger, to meet with Jesus like Mary does. He really is alive. He really is acting today and he's speaking and he wants to act in your life and in mine. And I feel that God wants us to come to him with a hunger that he will meet us and he will act. So why don't we stand and I'll pray before we worship. Jesus, you are so worthy. We just declare now that you are worth all of us and all we have and all we are. And we thank you that the experience of worshiping you is one of freedom and abundance and hope and a future and life to the full. I want to ask, God, that you would come and give us courage and give us faith to come to you as we really are, to come to you with the parts of ourselves which are like Mary and asking the question, Lord, why, if you had been here? And as we have the faith and the courage to do that, I pray for powerful, life-changing, society-changing encounters with you that don't just change us personally, but change the whole world around us like we see in Lazarus' story. As we worship, I just pray you would come, a Holy Spirit, and bless us with your presence. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.